Let's take our Bibles and turn to that word and to the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 1. And follow along as I read verses 35 through 45 this morning. And I encourage you to have your Bibles out as we read, as God speaks to you. And keep your word or your Bible out as we look into it this morning. So Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every corner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we thank you for your word, that word that is such a a delight to us. We pray, Father, now that as we consider this portion of your word, we pray that you would bless uh, the one who preaches. Lord, speak through him, overcome his his weakness of body and mind, Father, and, and encourage your people through the word that is preached this morning. We pray that your spirit would work in us to to teach us, to open our hearts and our ears that we would hear what you have for us this morning. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in Jesus Christ this morning in these verses. We ask this in his wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at verses... 21 through 34, and in those verses we followed Jesus in the beginning of his public ministry, as Mark records it. We followed him through what was a single day, we saw, a a single Sabbath day, and we were witnesses to his public display of divine authority in, in his teaching and in his authority over demons and in his authority over sickness as he demonstrated those in what we saw all of those things all of those all of those things being just a very clear a picture a very clear display of who he is this one who mark began his gospel by calling Jesus Christ the son of god And that is who it is. That is who he is. That is who we are looking at, who we are considering in these pages. Nothing less. And in our passage this morning, Mark is just going to continue on 
with his record uh, describing for us as a result of the, the interactions and his listening, remember, to the Apostle Peter, uh, that's where Mark got his, much of his information that he records for us. He's going to continue to tell us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so we're just moving on. That long day, that long Sabbath day being ended, Mark then picks up in this next verse on the next day. And our passage this morning finds Jesus praying. And that's the first thing that we want to look at this morning, is that Jesus goes away to pray. The verse, verse 35 says there that rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Now we're not surprised too much at this at, at first glance because after all this is Jesus and for him to seek a, a time and an opportunity to commune with his father through prayer is a very natural thing. We expect it. And we learn in the Gospels that it's a, it was a very normal thing. Uh, remember last week we saw that Jesus attended the synagogue uh, and we learned that that was his custom, that one of the Gospel writers tells us. And it's certainly true that him finding a time to pray was also his custom. Luke tells us, that especially as his fame grew and as crowds gathered around him more and more, that Luke said that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And we don't often think, when we think of ourselves and why we pray, and there are various reasons that we pray, and so we can look at Jesus praying and think, well, why would Jesus have to pray? But if you read the Gospels, you will see that he does. And he prays for many of the same reasons that you and I pray. He prays to give thanks to his Father. In Matthew 11, 25, he is recorded as praying, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He thanks his his Father for what his Father has done. Standing before the grave of Lazarus, ready to raise him from the dead, he prays and he says to his Father, I thank you that you've heard me. So Jesus prays to give thanks to God, just like we pray, should pray to thank God. That should be at the very top of the list when we come to God in prayer, to give Him thanks for what He has done. Jesus also prayed for wisdom, as we pray for wisdom. Hopefully we do. James tells us that we ought, and that when we do, that He will give it. But Jesus praying for wisdom is something we don't often think about. Now, obviously, Christ's divine nature did not need to pray for wisdom. He is wisdom. He's the very definition of wisdom. He's the one who gives wisdom. But Jesus is not just a divine nature, is he? No, he has a full and complete human nature as well, except for sin. And in that nature, he prayed for wisdom. He grew in wisdom. Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom. Luke 2.52 tells us that. And so it makes sense that, that he would pray for that. Especially it's recorded in certain times before certain events. For example, in Luke 6, in verses 12 and 13. As Jesus gets ready out of all of these disciples that he has called and who have started following him, when he gets ready to choose 12 of them, 
that we learn that he will call apostles, that he will send out with his authority as, as his emissaries. Before he does that, the night before, he goes out and he prays. So Jesus prayed for wisdom. He also prayed for God's will to be done. Do we pray that? We should. That's what Jesus teaches us to pray. Even when that fact, and Jesus prayed that, even when that fact would within just a few hours after him praying it lead to his death on a cross, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus prayed, as we should, prayed for others. Specifically, we see that so wonderful, wonderfully in John 17, when Jesus prayed what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays that they would grow in love and in unity. And then you know that in that prayer, he prays for you. That's a wonderful thought to know that Jesus prayed for you. Not just in general, but for you. You say, where, where did he do that? Well, right towards the end of that prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his twelve. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you believe in Christ? If so, you believe in Christ as the, as the Holy Spirit took the word of God, the gospel, and made it effectual in your heart. This is the teaching of the apostles. If you know about Christ, if you came to know about Christ, it was through the teaching of the apostles. And if you are saved, you have come to know Christ through their word. And therefore, Jesus prayed for you on that night. So Jesus prayed for others. And we know that Jesus uh, experienced the weakness of the flesh and that he was in need of strengthening according to his human nature. He needed the strengthening. He needed the support of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. And we read that the angels came and and ministered to him as a result of that prayer. So Jesus prayed. And Jesus was really the, the archetype of the man of prayer. He was the example of it. And here we see him recognizing and through Mark's record teaching us as we read it, the importance of prayer. I mean, think about it. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you need to pray? And Jesus rises early. He, he gives priority to, to that action. So he rises early before daylight. He gets away from the crowds. He gets away from the house even, his followers. He gets away from, from everything out to a spot where he is alone. And we're not told where he went uh, other than to a desolate place. That language of a desolate place is reminiscent, isn't it, of the beginning of Mark's gospel when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And there as well, God strengthened him through the angels who ministered to him. So Jesus goes out and he prays. And as he is there, out praying very early in the morning, back at the house, Simon Peter wakes up, looks around, realizes that Jesus is gone. So he rouses the others, gets them together to go out and look for Jesus. Where is he? Where is he gone? 
Now, we don't know if they somehow knew where to look. Perhaps it's a place that Jesus had gone uh, before. Maybe he even took them there uh, as they they knew about the Garden of Gethsemane uh, down outside of Jerusalem. But they go out and look for Jesus. And verse 37 tells us that they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And in that phrase, everyone's looking for you, we can sense, and and that's certainly Simon Peter as the leader of the group already, uh, saying this. there's There's a mild sort of rebuke to Jesus in that. Now, we know that this won't be the last time that Peter is bold enough to rebuke the Lord. Um, we, what is it that Peter says when Jesus reveals all the things that are going to happen to him? He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's going to be crucified. What is it Peter says? No, far be it from you, Lord. These things will never happen to you. Well, here, Simon Peter is likely the one saying, Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing out here? You need to be back at the house. There's ministry to be done. Because already, certainly still in the morning here, the crowds who have experienced Jesus' teaching, who have been healed by uh, his ministry of healing, they're already likely gathering there in Capernaum. Again, bringing no doubt as they had the day before, all of the sick, all of the demon-possessed, waiting for Jesus to do miracles, waiting for Jesus to liberate people from the oppression of these unclean spirits. And they're expecting Jesus to be there too. But they're not really expecting him for the reason that we would hope. The response of the people has not been what Jesus called for as he preached the gospel in verse 15. Their response was supposed to be, according to Jesus, to repent and believe the gospel. But these people are coming to continue to see the signs, to continue to get their healings. That continues to be an issue in Jesus' ministry where people follow him. They don't really listen to him, other than superficially, but they come seeking the signs. In fact, Jesus will confront the crowds about that later. In John 6, 26, Jesus answered the crowds and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That is, not because you perceived what the miracles were pointing to, but because you had your belly filled. And that's why you're coming. That's why you're seeking. Because he knew, as we learn elsewhere, he knew what was in man. And here it's the same. And Jesus recognizes that. And isn't that still a problem today? That people are often, so often drawn to the to the to the signs and not to what the signs are pointing to. It's also true of leaders of the church that are seduced by the the positive response of people to those types of showy things. For both pastors and congregations to be attracted, really to be drawn away by the signs, to be enraptured by the, the show is really to miss what is truly important. But Jesus isn't fooled. 
He's not fooled by their enthrallment with his miracles. Because like I said, he knew what was in man. And so Jesus gives a response as the, as the disciples come and say, we got to get you back. It, it's time for you to heal more people. Jesus gives a response to the disciples that is really surprising. And so we look at, secondly, Jesus' surprising response. And basically, his response to their requests, their demand, even, if you will, is no. Verse 38, and he said to them, he, I love this, he sort of ignores that whole thing, and he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. No, Jesus says, we're not going to go back there because we need to move on. We're not going to go back and cater to to their desires to, to just see these miracles, but we need to move on. We need, he says, to go on to the next towns. He says that I may preach there also. So again, we see Jesus' priority of preaching. For, he says, that is why I came out. So again, we see Mark's presentation. We've already seen it, and we'll see it again. His presentation of Jesus as a a man on a mission. And a man with his own schedule to keep. And it's not dictated by anything outside of himself. It's dictated by his own understanding of his ministry. There's a lot of ministry to do, Jesus is saying. There's a lot of lost sheep to go and to gather. And we need to keep moving. We need to go to other towns. We need to, he says, preach there also. And Jesus reminds the disciples that that it's not just Jesus keeping a schedule because he's a sort of type A person. That he's got his day planner and, and like some people, I can't veer from this. That's not why. But he says, this is why I came out. And he doesn't mean this is why I came out from the house out here to this desolate place. But Jesus is clear and he's focused as to his ministry during this part of his life. Ultimately, his ministry, his purpose, his his work will be to lay down his life for many. To offer up himself as a substitute before the the judgment bar of God the Father in the place of sinners. But before that time comes, before that hour comes, his ministry is, as Isaiah prophesied it, it is to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captive, to proclaim that, as he's already said, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that men must repent and believe. Jesus says, that's why I came, and that's what we're going to do. We need to go do that. The miracles were secondary. The miracles are a means to an end. The miracles are displays of Jesus' authority to forgive sin. They are evidence that all he says is true. And Jesus will continue to do those. He'll continue to do miracles. He'll continue to do signs that point to him, that point to his authority, to point to the forgiveness of sins. But the miracles are not why he came. He did not come to put on a show, but to redeem sinners from their sins and to proclaim the gospel of that forgiveness. 
not to get ahead of ourselves, but in the next chapter of this book, he's going to make that explicit. But for now, Mark says that Jesus and his disciples do just what Jesus says, that they move on. Verse 39 says, He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. See, he still does the miracles, but again, they're secondary to his preaching. The preaching is the message. It is the teaching. It is the doctrine. No one was ever saved from their sins through a a miracle like these, but only through faith in the message of the gospel. And in fact, only ever through the one to whom preaching points. People aren't saved by preaching. People aren't even really saved by the gospel. They're saved by Christ who is proclaimed in the gospel that we believe through the grace and the faith that God gives to us. Jesus saves through faith. So Jesus then, with the disciples, go on throughout all of Galilee, all of that whole region there around the Sea of Galilee to the, to the north and to the west and to the, the southwest of it. And Mark says he goes on just like he had done in the beginning, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So you see that he continues to do the miracles that point to the truthfulness of what his word is. And although Mark doesn't mention that he continues to do healings in addition to casting out demons, we know that he does. And in verse 40 and following, Mark records for us a very significant miracle that Jesus does. And we're going to turn to that now. This is quite a remarkable miracle that we read about in verses 40 through 45. A remarkable healing, a remarkable incident for several reasons. It's more than just a healing. And again, again, remarkable for several reasons. Here's what happens. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The first remarkable thing in this passage here is that, as Mark says, a leper came to him. We know today of many horrible devastating diseases. But throughout the days that are covered in the writings of the Old and New Testament, none was so feared, none was so far-reaching in its effect on a person, none was so overwhelming, none was so demoralizing as leprosy. The word leprosy itself can refer, it's a pretty broad Word. It can refer to what we would call true leprosy. Today we call it Hansen's disease. Or it can refer to any number of, of symptomatically related maladies of, of the skin, all that fall under the, this broad banner of leprosy. 
Today, leprosy, true leprosy, is fairly easily treated. But in the first century, and back into the days of the Old Testament, it wasn't. In fact, there was no cure for leprosy. In fact, the opinion of the rabbis was that leprosy, quote, was as difficult to cleanse, it was as difficult to cleanse a leper as to raise the dead. In fact, the king of Israel back in 2 Kings chapter 5 reflects that when he's asked by the king of Syria to, you remember the story, to heal Naaman of his leprosy, the king of Israel replies, am I God? Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Leprosy was, according to the Mosaic law, a special category of disease. Probably because of the the nature of the disease and its manifestation in the body, on the poor soul that's afflicted with it, it became, leprosy did, sort of a, a poster child for uncleanness and defilement. It was a horrible disease. In fact, it was widely believed that leprosy was a punishment for sin or was the result of some particular sin, that it was God's punishment on someone. And it was truly life-altering. Imagine coming home from work one day and noticing a small sore on the, on the back of your hand. You think nothing of it, really, go on. Except that over time, instead of getting better, it gets worse. And finally, as it gets worse over the back of your hand, it begins to, to turn white around the edges. And that concerns you. So you go to the priest in the Old Testament. There weren't what we think of today as, as doctors. Um, but you go to the priest, and they, they fulfilled this, and, and God had given them the instructions here. And he examines you and examines this sore and, and has you come back every week for a couple of weeks to see how it's doing, and he examines it again, and eventually he pulls you aside and he gives to you the most dreaded diagnosis you could get. And it's not cancer. They, of course, they didn't know about cancer, couldn't diagnose cancer. Not cancer. This is worse. Not AIDS. This is worse. I guess I should throw COVID in here too. Not COVID. This is worse. You have leprosy. And I won't go into the physical details, which could be quite gruesome. If you're interested, Leviticus 13 and 14 is sort of the handbook for the priest to be able to diagnose this. You can read that. But along with the the effects, along with just having the disease, there was more that came along with this. You are going now to have to leave your wife, your children, your land, your home, your job, the temple, and you're going to have to go live by yourself or, or perhaps with other people who have this disease outside of the city gates for probably the rest of your life as your body becomes deformed through the ravages of the disease and we know that it's not that it caused parts to fall off 
but it caused your nerves to not be able to feel pain. And as you go on through your daily life, you would do things, you might sleep and roll over into the fire and not feel it and burn your foot off, something like that. That's leprosy in ancient Israel, in first century Israel. And the task fell to the priests to evaluate potential cases of this. They couldn't cure it. No one could cure it. But it was the priest's job, as I said, to to look at it, to follow God's law, to make observations, and to lead the person through the extensive process of being removed from society. And if the disease turned out maybe to not be true leprosy, but to be something else, and the person gets over it, then to, to take them through the steps to be reassimilated into society, into the community of faith. And as I said, in addition to the physical misery of leprosy, the disease carried with it serious social, religious implications. Like I said, there's... You know, there's no mention in the Bible of of leper colonies. But those with the disease were unable to live with anyone else. They were unable to worship in the tabernacle or in the temple. They were isolated from others. And when they did go out in public, they had to make it very clear, very obvious by their dress and by their appearance and by their actions that they were unclean. From Leviticus 13... Verses 45 and 46 says that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So isolation was the order of the day for the person with leprosy. And so it is remarkable that we read here in verse 40 that a leper came to Jesus. A risky endeavor for a person in such a state in that society, a serious breach of of social and religious protocol. But it also is understandable and the understandable action of a person who is desperate for help. Again, no cure. Isolation was required. But this man comes to Jesus. And this leper, and Luke tells us that he was full of leprosy. That he comes right up to Jesus. He speaks to him. Maybe he saw Jesus and his, and his party coming into town. And he recognized them somehow. He had heard uh, through, through the, the word that had gotten out about Jesus and about what he could do. And he says, maybe, maybe there's hope. And he comes up to Jesus and he speaks to Jesus. Mark says he was imploring him. He begged him. That's the first remarkable thing is that this man comes up to Jesus. The second remarkable thing is that he asks Jesus to heal him. Why would he ask the impossible of Jesus? Probably, again, because he had seen or heard that Jesus was able to do the impossible. He was able to cast demons out. He was able to heal all sorts of diseases. Maybe he can do this. But look at the the desperation. Look at the faith 
Look at the humility of this man. He comes to Jesus imploring him, and we read, Mark says, that he kneeled to him. He kneeled before him. And he said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. So he kneels before Jesus, a sign of reverence, if not worship. And his words are, If you will, you can make me clean. This man recognized his need for Jesus and his condition. He knew that that Jesus, if anyone, Jesus is the one who could help him. If you will, he says. And notice that the man doesn't have any doubt about Jesus' ability. He doesn't say, heal me if you can. But he says, if you will. If it is in your heart, Jesus, to do this, you can do it. I know you can do it. Where did he get that faith? It had to come from God. If it is in your heart to do this, Jesus, you can do it. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, the typical response of a Jew to a leper approaching him would be to run or to avoid contact, to recoil at least. But what do we read? What does Jesus do? First, we see that Jesus was moved with pity. The Creator is struck with this man's situation. What a beautiful attribute, pity. What an important attribute of God. The Bible says in Psalm 72, 13, that that he has pity on the weak. And it's in his pity that he redeems people, Isaiah 63, 9 says. Jesus' pity, his feeling of compassion for this man is remarkable. But what happens next is such an expression of that pity that we can hardly believe it if it were not here in God's word. This is moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So the third remarkable thing is what Jesus did. Don't miss the force of that. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He touched a leper. You don't touch a leper. And the word signifies a gentle touch. Perhaps he held this man's hand, if he had a hand, and put his hand on his head, perhaps. There's an old song I'm reminded of that said, He touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, what joy that floods my soul. This leper didn't write that song, but he could have. First, this was probably the first human contact that he had had, except for maybe another leper, in who knows how long. And second, Jesus, in touching this man, was coming into contact with someone who was ceremonially legally unclean, and in doing so, Jesus was himself breaching protocol. Jesus himself would become unclean by contact with an unclean person. That's the whole purpose for saying not to touch lepers. But that's not what happens here. In fact, beloved, it's the exact opposite. Here, the contact between the clean and the unclean Results not in the unclean person becoming, or I'm sorry, not 
results, does not result in the clean person becoming unclean, but results in the unclean person becoming clean. The virtue, the power of Christ overcame the corrupting influence of man's leprosy. Think of the just the, the, the greatness, the importance of Jesus reaching out and touching this man. Jesus ignoring health protocols, ignoring societal norms, ignoring religious norms, reaches out and touches this man who is in so desperate a need. And Jesus touched him. By the way, did Jesus have to touch him to heal him? No. It is an act of of unrestrained compassion. As were his words. Two words in the original. He says, I will. Be clean. And immediately, Mark tells us, the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. And oh, what joy that floods my soul. Again, we should be struck. Struck. We should be instructed both by the immediacy and the, and the fullness of the man's healing by Jesus' touch. Again, Jesus doesn't heal eventually. He doesn't heal partially. He healed immediately. And he healed fully. But let me draw something else to your attention. Or you draw your attention to something else. Do you notice that there's no mention in this passage about healing? You say, wait, that's what the whole passage is about. Well, yes, of course, the man was healed, immediately, completely, gloriously healed. But Mark never says that. The man says, if you will, you can what? Make me clean. Jesus says, I will what? Be clean. Mark says in verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was what? clean. First, we should notice here that Jesus does not just declare him clean. That's what the priests would do. That was their job. That was all the priests could do. But Jesus is able to make this man clean, and that is what he did. And remember that the man recognized that at the beginning that he could. If you will, you can make me clean. Not just you can pronounce me clean. You're not just a glorified priest but you can make me clean. You can fix this. So loathsome, so defouling association with with the uncleanness. It was never healed. The Bible never talks about leprosy being healed, always about it being cleansed. And that leads to the second thing that I want to have us understand is that because of the nature of leprosy, because of the regulations, because of the actions and the understanding that God surrounded this disease with in the Mosaic regulations, leprosy is a very vivid picture in the scripture of man's sinful condition. And this is another demonstration of Jesus' authority. As leprosy was associated with sin and punishment, it is significant that Jesus can fix that. That Jesus can remove that which people can't remove. And in the healing of this man with leprosy, we have a picture of a greater cleansing. The cleansing from sin. 
that with man is impossible, leaving man in a state of separation from God, isolation, without God, without hope of any change. But with Christ, when one comes humbly and says to Christ, if you will, you can make me clean. It is the promise of the gospel that Jesus' responds to that cry will always, always be, I will be clean. Or as Jesus said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what Jesus did. That's what the, this action of Jesus, that's why this is here. There's one more item to to touch on just briefly this morning, and it's the result of this. And again, it's surprising, and it really serves, this next uh, verse here, serves as a transition to the next section of Mark's gospel. And it's the last thing that we want to see, and it's the leper's surprising response. First, though, Jesus himself gives a surprising command to the the now ex-leper in verses 43 and 44, we read that Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is strong language. It comes across a little bit here in the English, but it's stronger in the original. Jesus is getting on this guy. He's giving him a charge, a command. Jesus is always concerned that God's law be followed. And so he tells this man to go and to do what the law of Moses commanded for a leper who would be healed. And if you're interested, again, Leviticus 13 and 14, especially chapter 14, explains that process, explains what Jesus is telling this man to do. But he tells him, see that you say nothing to anyone else. Go to the priest. And the purpose of this, in this particular section, interestingly, is that Jesus says that it is for a proof to them. For a proof to them. Who? To the priests. That the priests of Israel might know that God is now doing a mighty work among his people through someone who could do what no mere man could do and something that God himself had only done twice In the Old Testament, there are two people that God heals from leprosy. If any of the young people, any of the older people, come and tell me who those two people are after service, I'll be fairly impressed, for whatever that's worth. But if they saw that, then how could they deny the work and the person of Christ by disregarding this healing and setting themselves then in conflict with the fact that, as Acts says, that a notable sign had been performed. Later, Jesus will address ten lepers who come to him and receive healing. To themselves, be sure to go and show themselves to the priest. And Jesus tells this man, do it, do it now. Don't do anything else, do it. And he charges him, in that manner. Now, Jesus knew, but we don't have it recorded for us, whether or not the man obeyed and went to the priests, as Jesus had told him to. 
But we are told that he, of course Jesus knew this too, that he surprisingly, this man who had just been healed, flatly disregarded Jesus' other command. And verse 45 says that he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. What's that about? Does that sound like anybody you know? How about, does that sound like anyone that you are? That despite the great grace that God has shown to us in bringing us from corruption to cleanness, that we still think that we have the, the ability to pick and to choose which of God's commands we will follow and which we won't? What a poor show of gratitude that is when we say no to God. Let me ask you this, Christian. In your life, and I'm asking myself too, in your life, in your every decision of every day, do you express gratitude to God by obeying his word? Or or do you treat God's grace as something insignificant as, as you decide that your way is really the better way? Thank you very much. So we are not, before we criticize and condemn this man, I don't think we're any better. But this man's disobedience, recorded here, has a serious effect. So let's look at that sad result as we close here. Verse 45. It says, but he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out, where? In desolate places again, in the wilderness again. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Because he disobeyed, because this man disobeyed Jesus' command, Jesus' preaching ministry in Galilee at this time is basically ended. And as we next week begin in chapter 2, we'll see that the flavor of Mark chapter 2 will be notably different than what we've seen here in chapter 1. And we'll see that next week. But let us take this as a call to renewed gratitude to God for what he has done. Let us remember that we, at some point through God's doing, approached Christ and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And he said, I will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his wonderful ministry. We thank you for the fact that he has made us clean who were corrupt and who were without hope in this world and in the world hereafter. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his pity that he has shown to us. Help us, Lord, to be grateful And help us to demonstrate that gratitude by obeying your law as you've given it to us. Help us to do what we ought do. Father, we pray that you'd help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.